0: finishing our study of the book of Ephesians this morning. So if you've got a Bible, go to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 10 through 24 this morning. Ephesians 6, 10 through 24. We'll spend most of our time actually in verses 10 through 17 this morning. One of my favorite stories is The Lord of the Rings. I know that many of you have read the books. I know that probably more of you have seen the films. And if you've read the books or seen the films, you know that The Lord of the Rings is an epic story about a battle between good and evil. It's set in the fictional land of Middle-earth. And there is a dark, evil lord, Sauron, who's trying to take over Middle-earth. And the free people and elves and hobbits and what have you of Middle-earth are trying to fight back against the evil of Sauron. And in the movies, one of my favorite scenes happens toward the end of the story as the armies of Middle-earth, particularly the human armies of Middle-earth, decide that they're going to gather at the Black Gate of Mordor against Sauron and his forces. And they know that they can't win against Sauron and his forces. All they're trying to do is buy time for the hobbit Frodo to sneak into Mordor and destroy Sauron's ring, which would destroy his power. Right, so you may remember in the movie there's a scene where Aragorn, Aragorn, who is the rightful king of Gondor, the realm of men, he stands in front of his troops And they're about to attack the gates of Mordor. And the gates open and they see very quickly, they are outnumbered. The good forces are outnumbered by the evil forces. And so all of these nasty orcs and Urukai start pouring out of Mordor. And you see that the men are afraid. And then Aragorn rides by on his horse and he says a great battle speech. Aragorn says, sons of Gondor, of Rohan, my brothers... I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West, right? And he says it, and all the soldiers go, yeah! And if you're in the theater, you go, yeah! Right? Or watching it on TV, and you're ready to grab your sword. You're like, where's some orcs? I'm ready to kill some. Right? And he motivates his troops by reminding them of the values that they hold dear, and then assuring them. That it is possible to win the victory, even in the face of overwhelming odds. Most great war movies have a speech like that, where the general or the leader gets up and he gives this motivational speech to inspire his troops to action. Uh, This was one of the few that I actually could read in church this morning. They get a little salty in some of the movies. But, but I love this speech because you go, yeah, I would fight for that guy. Now, the reason I share that is because here in Ephesians chapter 6, what we see right at the end of the book of Ephesians is Paul's pre-battle speech to the Ephesian believers. Right at the end of the book, Paul recognizes here, after laying out for them the gospel, after laying out for them the implications of the gospel, Paul then says, now I know you are going into a hostile situation world. You live in a hostile world. And in the midst of that hostile world, you need to recognize there there really is a war going on, a war between good and evil. And then he says, but don't be afraid. God has given you everything you need to win the battle. And really, in order to win the battle, he's going to say the way to defeat the enemy is you fill your mind and heart with those things we hold Dear, the truth of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And the way that Paul lays all of this out is by means of talking about the armor of God. Now it's interesting, Paul, as he wrote the book of Ephesians, was in prison. You see at the end of the book, he says, I'm an ambassador in chains. Most people think Paul was in prison in Rome, right? So he has faced opposition for the gospel. And he's been put in prison and he's awaiting trial. Now what's interesting is, as he's thinking about these Ephesian believers, he thinks this. They're going to face opposition for following Jesus. Just as I am facing opposition for following Jesus. What do they need? They need armor and weaponry to fight against the forces of the devil. And then he looks around and he probably notices, guarding him, some Roman soldiers. And those Roman soldiers would have been arrayed in the armor of their day. And so he begins to write and he equates the armor of the Roman soldier to the spiritual armor that we are called to wear as believers in Jesus Christ. All right, so Paul's going to say, look, you're, you're facing a very real spiritual battle. I don't know if you've ever noticed that walking with Jesus for a lifetime is hard to do. Right? It's not an easy thing to do. If it were an easy thing to do, nobody would ever walk away. If it were an easy thing to do, then nobody in this room this morning would have walked in discouraged because you think, you know what, I've been trying to follow Jesus faithfully and yet the things in my life aren't working out like I wanted them to work out. Nobody in this room would have walked in tempted to give in to sin or despair or to walk away from the whole thing. But I'm going to guess that there are some in this room this morning that you walked in in a state of discouragement and temptation and frustration because there is opposition. And that opposition is in the world and that opposition is often in our hearts. We face a very real spiritual battle. And Paul addresses that at the end of the book of Ephesians. Once again, let me just remind of the flow of the book of Ephesians, especially if you haven't been here all semester the first three chapters, all Paul really did was lay out the good news of Jesus Christ. Basically, in these first three chapters, here's what he said. He's like, before you knew Jesus, before you knew Jesus, you really just followed the course of the world. Remember, he says you followed the course of the world, which was according to what? The prince of the power of the air. The world follows the ideals and the mindset of the devil. Before you knew Jesus, that was what you did. But he said, in Jesus Christ, you now have been set free. You are no longer a captive to sin and death or to Satan because Jesus died for sin. Jesus rose again and he defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated Satan. And now you were far away from God, destined for hell, but now you are reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. And consequently, we are reconciled to one another. Where there was enmity, there is now peace. Where there was hopelessness, there is now hope and life. That's the first three chapters. And then the second three chapters, he says, in light of that, here's how you are called to live. And he drills down. You remember, he drills down into our relationships, relationships in the church. How do we treat one another? Relationships in the home. How do we treat our spouse? How do we treat our kids? Relationships in the workplace. Remember last week we talked about this passage about slaves and masters. And we talked about how that was the primary economic setting of their day. And Paul talks about in this economic setting, how do you conduct yourself? So he says, this is how you live in Jesus Christ. But then right here at the end of the book in Ephesians 6, he says, I want you to know also though, if you try to live this way, if you try to follow Jesus, you will experience hostility, discouragement, discouragement, frustration. You will be attacked with the lies of the enemy, and you need to know right now the resources that you have in order to fight that battle well. So we're going to look this morning at Ephesians chapter 6 and ask the question, how can we stand firm in Jesus Christ, even in the face of opposition in the world, and sin and opposition often in our own hearts? So look with me at Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Paul says, finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. All right. So the first thing that Paul tells us is this. This is our mission. Okay. Our mission is to stand firm. Also at the end of verse 13, he repeats it. Stand firm. Beginning of verse 14. Stand firm. He says it three times right here toward the beginning of this passage. Your mission is to stand firm. Now, this is significant because here's what Paul is not saying. I think we need to recognize what he's not saying. Your mission and my mission is not to win the war. Okay, our mission is not to win the war. Our mission is actually to stand firm. Why? Because Jesus has already won the war the result of the war, the outcome of the war between the forces of Satan and the forces of God are already predetermined. Jesus died and rose again. He defeated Satan once and for all. All we're waiting for now is the final end of Satan and his demons. What Paul says instead is is your responsibility is to stand firm. I think this is significant because all too often I think we believe that our responsibility, our job is to win the war. In other words, that our job is to make the world be Christian or to make the world conform to our understanding of God. Especially, I think, as American Christians, we believe that our culture ought to be Christian. And we look around in the culture and we see it seemingly falling apart morally. And we say, what can I do to make people obey Jesus? Right, I don't know how many of you remember a couple of years ago the great Starbucks red cup controversy. Many of you will remember this. Starbucks went from having like snowflakes that said Merry Christmas and snowmen on their coffee cups to just a red cup, just a plain red cup. And there were some people, some Christians, they were outraged at the red cups. I even saw a video from one pastor that was like, this is unacceptable. It's an attack on Jesus and on Christianity. So he said, when you go into Starbucks and they ask you your name, you tell them your name is Merry Christmas. So when they call your coffee, they have to say Merry Christmas. And I thought, man, I just don't know if lying about my name is the best way to shine the light of Jesus into the darkness. All right. not only that, I'm not convinced that that's the war that I'm called to win. To make Starbucks say Merry Christmas. To make the culture bow to the will of those of us who follow Jesus. Paul says that's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to trust God with the cosmic implications of the gospel. You, you know what you do? You stand firm. You stand your ground. What what does that mean? I think what Paul is saying is is this, that you are called to what we might consider some very basic responsibilities, to stand firm. That is, you keep believing in Jesus. You keep trusting him. Don't allow bitterness and unbelief to poison your heart. And we're going to see that as the passage moves forward. You keep obeying Jesus. Don't allow sin to lead you astray. You keep proclaiming Jesus in the love of God, not to coerce others, but instead to offer the gift of life in Jesus Christ. You stand firm. If we want to have an impact in the world, the first battle to be fought is in our own hearts. And what Paul talks about in Ephesians 6 is that the primary battleground is, is in here. Not out there. It's in here. I will never forget being in college and hearing a pastor and a group of college students, several hundred college students, he said, statistically speaking, most of you will not stand firm until the end. Most of you, you'll simply fade away. You might not overtly stop believing in Jesus, but you'll stop pursuing him. Some of you will stop believing in Jesus altogether. Right? And and I've seen that to be true throughout my life and my experience. Paul says, no, stand firm, right? It's not that you're going to lose your salvation, but it is that because you know Jesus... The darts of the enemy are constantly being aimed at your heart and mind. And so he says, your mission, you stand firm, keep believing, keep obeying, keep proclaiming until the day Jesus comes and finishes the war. And as we seek to stand firm, Paul goes on and says, we have a very real opposition and our opposition is the devil. Look at the end of verse 11 going into verse 12. He says that you will be able to stand firm against what? The schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, our opposition is not flesh and blood, but it's the spiritual forces of wickedness. Now, anytime we start talking about the devil, I realize there are some people that you, you kind of start to freak out. Right? For a couple of reasons. One, maybe you've known somebody that believed every bad thing that happened was like the direct result of a demon. Right? So I had a friend growing up that there were demons of everything. Like there were demons of traffic, demons of the broken down car. You know, if you had a tummy ache, there was, you know, be gone, demon of the tummy ache. Right? And you'd kind of go, actually, I just ate too many tacos yesterday. This one's on me. It's not a demon. And so we hear about the devil and we go, is this going to be one of those things where you're going, there's a demon behind the curtains, there's a demon behind every bush, we need to constantly be thinking about demons. That's not where Paul is is going. Okay, but the reality is that Paul's going to say, we often, I think, overlook the reality that there is a spiritual war that truly is happening, that Satan truly wants to destroy the people of God. And we're going to look in a little bit about at how he does it, right? But we often overlook that reality. So in, in our world, here's I think what we do. When we are struggling with sin, we think, you know what? I need maybe a medical doctor or maybe I need a psychiatrist or maybe I just need to talk to somebody. Maybe I need to take a nap, right? Those are all legitimate, by the way. If you're a college student and you're really angry and struggling with anger, maybe you just need a nap. That could be the best thing you do. Okay, so there is a physical and an emotional and a mental component to our lives. But Paul says we don't want to overlook that there is a spiritual component as well, that there is an enemy of God who is launching assaults at the people of God, right? And our enemy is not flesh and blood. All too often we believe, look, who's our, who's our enemy? Who's our enemy? Well, it's the liberals, right? Our enemy is the liberals. They're out to get us. Right? Or our enemy is Hollywood, it's the actors and actresses and producers in Hollywood. So we watch a screen and we see evil philosophies and activity happening and we go, that is the enemy right there. And Paul would say, no, that's actually not the enemy. Because when we see people engaged in sin, promoting sin, speaking of sin, they are not enemies to be destroyed. Paul would say they are captives to be rescued. Because they're enslaved to the darkness. And their enemy, and God's enemy, Satan, has created a system of deception. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul writes this about the deception in our world. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He says this, that the enemy of God is working all the time to blind people to the reality of who Jesus is, but he has shown in our hearts to give us the knowledge of Christ. And so what's our task? We allow that light to illuminate our hearts and minds so that it will shine out into the darkness of the world. So that the enemy we face is the devil himself who's created a system of evil that we once were in and have now been rescued from. When I was in seminary about 15 years ago or so, there was a burger restaurant near SMU that Shannon and I loved to eat at when we could. They had great burgers, these kind of thin patty burgers, these great fries with great... I mean, everything about it was just fantastic, at least as far as the food goes. But it was interesting, the staff was as rude as the food was good. I mean, it was amazing. You would go in and this just amazing food. But the staff, I mean, they were just... They were rude, right? So they would not make eye contact with you, for one. If you asked for an extra condiment like ketchup, you would get right? Like a a deep, long sigh. Then they'd give it to you. I actually saw them toss people's food at them from time to time. Like the whole environment was one of just rudeness, right? And it was easy to get frustrated at those people. But then I thought, you know, I wonder what would happen if you took this 17-year-old employee and you moved him down the street to Chick-fil-A. I'll bet he'd suddenly be friendly. Why? Why? Because over here in this burger place, there was a system of darkness, right? There was a system of rudeness, right? And what needed to happen? They needed rescue, right? To Chick-fil-A. That's what Paul's getting at. Okay, when we encounter evil in the world, those men and women that we encounter engaged in evil, they're not the enemy. Paul says struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against God's enemy. And so we need to fight on the right battlefield. We don't attack people. We attack in the spiritual realm through prayer, through the knowledge of the scripture, and through obedience to Jesus Christ. Because that's the opposition that we face. And then Paul's going to go on and he's going to say, what is the power we have to fight the battle? And this is where we get into the armor of God. Our power is the armor of God. Look at verse 13. He says, therefore, right, in light of this battle, here's what you need to do. Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Now, before I dive into the specific pieces of armor, I want to make a couple of observations from verse 13. The first one is this. We are called to resist in what Paul calls the evil day. All right, what is the evil day? Well, some people think the evil day is like the great tribulation at the end of time. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about right here, though. I don't think that's the specific evil day. Here's what I think he's talking about here. I think Paul recognizes that in the life of every Christian, there is going to come one and probably more than one evil day. Where the forces of evil will be strongly aligned against you in your own heart and mind. And it's going to come in a moment when you are weak. When the circumstances of your life are not what you had hoped they would be. Right When your family isn't working out like you had hoped it would work out. When your spouse or your kids will not listen and do what you say. And you just know if they would, the world would be better and bitterness begins to creep in, or you go to work and you have been faithful at work for years to do what is right, and you do not see the success you believe you are owed, or your finances or your health are falling apart despite your best efforts to keep it all together. And it's at that moment that the lies of the enemy get their strongest. When we're angry and weak and tired, and hungry, and then we begin to hear those lies. And so Paul says the value of the armor of God he's about to lay out is when that day comes, you stand firm. Think about Jesus at his temptation. It's recorded in three of the four gospels, but in Luke 4 particularly, you see this account of the temptation of Jesus and what does the devil do? He lies to Jesus multiple times by twisting scripture to try to get Jesus to step outside of the will of God, right? To to go do things on his own apart from the Father. Jesus responds over and over again with scripture. But notice when the devil comes to Jesus after Jesus had been fasting alone for 40 days. You think he felt vulnerable? You think he felt tired? You think he felt lonely? And that's when the devil shows up. And after Jesus passes the temptation, Luke 4.13 says the devil left him for an opportune time. So the devil is always looking for that moment, that evil day, that opportune time. And Paul says, this is why daily you put on the armor of God. So when that moment comes, like Jesus at his own temptation, you can stand. That we don't give in to sin and bitterness on that evil day. The other thing I want to point out is that this is the armor of God. The armor doesn't come from you and me. Paul doesn't say, look, you go out there and you just stand. Use whatever you can. Your brain, your talent, your good looks, whatever it may be. You go out there and you stand. He says, no, here's what you do. He says, be strengthened. This is a passive verb, not an active verb. It doesn't say get strong. It says be strengthened in the power of God and take up God's armor. God has sent us out into his battlefield with his equipment, his armor. I was reminded this week of the very first time that I ever went hunting. I didn't grow up hunting. My family was not outdoorsy. My dad was not outdoorsy. His idea of hunting was like going to find rare physics books at half price books on the weekends. That was what we did for hunting. So we lived in Dallas. We didn't go hunting. First time I ever went, I was maybe 29 years old. I went on a turkey hunting trip with some of the other pastors here at Graves. And I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never been before. I didn't have any equipment. I had no expertise. So I talked with one of our other pastors, Brad Evans. Some of you guys know Brad. And Brad grew up hunting. Brad is a good hunter. He knows what he's doing. And so I said, Brad, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have anything I need. And if you send me out into the forest to shoot a turkey... I will probably not return, right? <laughs> Turkeys could surround me and hurt me, like as far as I know. I've never done this before. So, Brad, here's what he says. He says, no, Don't worry about it. You just show up. You come out with me. And we got there, and here's what Brad did. He said, Here's some camouflage. Now, I'm five foot seven. Brad is like six foot two. And so I had to roll everything up to wear his camouflage. He handed me one of his many extra shotguns. He set up the ground blind. Like we walked through the forest for a long time, and, and Brad kept going, Nope, that's not the spot. Nope, that's not the spot. I didn't know what he was looking for. And to this day, I actually still don't know what he was looking for. <laughs> he set up a ground blind. He set up the decoys. He got the turkey call, and he called in the turkey. And then when the turkey got there, he said, Okay, now all you got to do is aim the shotgun and fire. And I did, and I got it. And then Brad took the turkey. And he, he, he took the meat out of it and he gave it to me. And I was like, I did it. I got a turkey, right? No, actually, right, Brad did almost everything, okay? He gave me the camouflage of subterfuge and set up the ground blind of secrecy, handed me the shotgun of destruction, and I shot the turkey and I got the credit, right? Paul says, this is how God sends you into the battle. He says, you stand firm, but I give you everything you need. That's what the armor of God is. It's all the resources God provides for you and I to stand firm. And he wins the battle. And then guess what? He says, I'm going to reward you with eternal life and blessings forever for standing firm. But God did the work. And then Paul goes on and he says, here's the armor that God gives you. So when that evil day comes, when temptation assaults you, you can stand and continue to pursue Jesus. Let me walk through each piece of the armor here. Um, I want to show you, before we dive into it, just a picture. This is just a, a photo of what a Roman soldier might have looked like. You can see how he is dressed. In fact, a couple of months ago, my son and I got to go to the Museum of Natural History in Houston, and they were doing a gladiator exhibit. It was, actually, there were two exhibits we went to. One was mummies. The other was gladiators. It was perfect for my seven-year-old son. But they actually had pieces of Roman armor from the first century. And you can see, I just want to point out quickly, you can see his belt with the leather straps hanging down. You can see his breastplate right in front. He's got a big shield. He's got some leather sandals, a helmet on his head, and he's holding a sword in his hand. Paul is going to address each aspect of this armor and talk about how it relates to our ability to stand, all right? So I want to walk through each one. The first one is this. He says, verse 14, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. So the first one is the belt of truth. Now, you saw that belt there. The belt would have been a leather belt that the soldier would have put on. Probably the first thing, actually, that he would have put on when he put on his armor. It had leather straps that went down that would protect the lower area of the body. But beyond that, what it actually was used for was you could tuck other aspects of the armor into it, right? It would kind of help hold the breastplate in place. You would tie the sheath of your sword over onto that belt so that your sword would be sheathed onto it. So it was sort of foundational for all the rest of the armor. And that's one of the reasons I think Paul lists it first. And he equates the belt to truth. And he says the foundational piece of armor here is the truth of God. If you want to stand firm against the enemy, you need the truth of God. Why is that? Well, here's why. Because the devil's greatest strategy is to lie. That's what he does. Right? In popular culture, when we think about the devil, we often think about him, you know, like throwing plates across the room or possessing people or spinning their heads around. And I'm not saying that he would never do something like that, but that's not usually biblically how the devil works. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, think about Genesis 3. How does Satan lead Adam and Eve into sin? He doesn't actually do anything, right? At that point, he can't do much. He's a snake. So what does he do? He just has to talk. All he has to do is lie. And he lies to them by saying, look, God is not good. God has given you a prohibition that isn't in your best interest. Because God doesn't want the best for you. And he lies to them. And they believe him. And they sin. John chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus said, the devil does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What are the greatest lies I think that the devil tells us? I think primarily there are, there are a few. One is this, God isn't good. All right, God doesn't want my best. So when I'm in the midst of suffering, this must be because God doesn't really love me. And if God doesn't really love me, and if God isn't good, then I might as well engage in sin. And so that bitterness and anger and disbelief creeps into our heart. Or God can't fix this. That's another one. All right, this is too big. God isn't powerful enough. God isn't big enough. This will never change. And we begin to lock in on what's going on right now, and we forget the perspective of eternity. Or God would be okay with this. I know that God's word says we're not to lie. I know that God's word says that we're not to steal. I know that God's word says that we're not to commit adultery or whatever it may be, but this is an exception because God knows how unhappy I am. And so we allow those lies to penetrate our armor. And so Paul says, before any other armor, you put on the belt of truth. You fill your mind morning, noon, and night with the reality that God is good. God is powerful. God sees you. God cares. And God is working everything to a perfect resolution in Jesus Christ. So he says, you put on the belt of truth. And then he goes on, secondly, and he says, you put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, it's interesting. When you go back to the Old Testament, there's a reference to the breastplate of righteousness in Isaiah chapter 59. Verse 17, he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Who put on righteousness like a breastplate here? God, right? God goes into the battle armed with righteousness as his breastplate. Why? Because that's who God is. He is always righteous. What does that mean? God always does the right thing. God always does what is in keeping with his own character. God never lies. That's why he tells us not to lie. God never cheats Or steals, God never leaves, God always does what is right. And so Paul seeing the breastplate of the Roman soldier, I think is reminded of Isaiah 59. And I think here's what he's saying. This breastplate of righteousness is not the imputed righteousness that we received when we believed in Jesus. But I think what Paul is saying is this, as God is righteous, every day when you go to battle, you put on the righteousness of God. That is, you fill your mind first with truth that God is good. And then you march into battle and you say, no matter what comes, I will obey. I will follow the righteousness of God. See, I think there's something very powerful when a Christian is struggling and in pain and suffering and doesn't understand the value of righteousness, but chooses by the power of the Spirit to say, I'll obey and I will stand firm because I know who God is and what he's called me to do. Sin has a way of poisoning our hearts and our minds and causing us to believe in lies. But obedience has a way, actually. Sometimes our body has to obey first before our minds follow because there's such a connection between mind and body and spirit. And so sometimes you wake up and you say, I don't want to pray or read my Bible or do what is right. I don't want to keep doing the same good things day after day after day after day. Paul says, "You arm yourself with the breastplate of righteousness." I told uh, y'all back in January that I joined a gym. You know, kind of a New Year's resolution thing. I'm going to get strong, er, at least a little bit. You know, healthy, er, you know, lots of ers that I was going to. Add on to my life. And uh, so, I, so I did. I, I've exercised, you know, throughout my life in various ways, running or playing sports or whatever, but I'd never actually joined a gym, right? So I walked in and it's very intimidating, and they say things like, okay, go get a kettlebell. I'm like, ah, is that like a teapot? Like, I don't know what we're doing. What's going on? You know, so I had to learn this system, but I began to find that as I went, I got a little bit faster, stronger, healthier, all of these things. But here's what's interesting every time. I'm about to go to the gym every time. There's this voice inside of me that says, you don't want to go there, right? That's a place of pain. It's a place of hurting. They're going to make you run and lift heavy things. You remember that time that that elderly lady outran you? That will probably happen again. And it does Right, and every single time, every single time, this goes through my mind. So here's what I have to do: I just have to physically go change clothes and get in the car and drive there. And every I hear that voice, I'm like, "Nope, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going." All the way up to the door of the gym. Here's what happens, though: by the time I leave, I start thinking that was a good idea. I'm glad I did that. I feel better. All right, and I think that's what Paul would say here about the breastplate of righteousness. Sometimes you say, you know, I don't don't get why God is asking me to be faithful when it's difficult to be faithful for a lifetime. Why would I tell the truth when it will hurt me? Why would I give of my money when it might cost me? Why would I love my spouse as Christ loves the church when it's hard to do? But sometimes we obey and our minds and hearts follow. So he says, you put on the breastplate, Of righteousness. The third one is the shoes of the gospel. He says, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You saw in that picture earlier the leather sandals that the soldier would wear. Now, what's interesting is that what you can't see in a photo like that is that on the bottoms, on the soles of the sandals, there were usually hobnails underneath, and those nails could actually dig into the dirt, right? So if you were in the midst of a one-on-one sort of hand-to-hand conflict, you would stick those hobnails into the dirt, and as you were fighting, your enemy could not displace you from the ground that you were on. It would be harder for him to knock you over. Paul says that's the function of the gospel, that every day, day after day, we go back to filling our minds with truth, and specifically, you fill your mind and heart with the reality That Jesus died and rose again. And what does that reality mean? It means that he won the war, right? And so the good news is that no matter what's going on in your mind, in your heart, in your world, no matter what kind of opposition or lies you're hearing from the enemy, you go, Jesus defeated Satan. Jesus defeated death. Jesus defeated sin. So I don't have to give in to this. And you plant your feet in the gospel. I was thinking about John in the book of Revelation this week. Remember, he was in exile on Patmos, separated from his community, probably facing death. And then Jesus appears to him in this vision, and he sees Jesus. And listen to the first words that Jesus said to John when John saw him. He says this, fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. In other words, John, you're in a dire situation. I know it. The world around you feels hostile. You're in exile. You might die. But he says, guess what the good news is? I'm the living one. I died and rose again. And so the end of the story belongs to Jesus Christ. You go back to that and you fill your mind with that and you obey Jesus Christ in that evil day. So the shoes of the gospel. Fourthly, quickly, the shield of faith. That is the trust that we have in God, even when it's hard to trust. You remember that big shield covered almost all of the soldier's body. And often enemy soldiers would take little arrows and they would dip them in tar or pitch, and then they'd light them on fire and they would aim them at you and fire them at your chest and the idea was not merely to pierce your armor and your heart but also actually to light you on fire And so they would take this big shield and they would dip it in water before the battle and soak it in water so that when those arrows hit the shield, they would go out. That's what Paul's talking about here. He says, you stand behind that shield, which is the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. And you say, whatever lies come, I believe that God is good. I believe that God can be trusted. That's faith. And as those lies come at you, they go out. That's the shield of faith. And then the final two pieces of armor. He says, you take up the helmet of salvation... And then the sword of the spirit. Let me talk about each of these for a minute. These are the last two. And they would have been the final two pieces of armor that the soldier would have taken up. Probably if he was sitting sort of defending an area, he would just kind of sit down and he'd be wearing everything else except for his helmet. And his sword, of course, would be sheathed normally. The helmet was very hot to put on your head. So they didn't usually just sit around wearing the helmet. But when they saw an enemy approaching, they would grab that helmet and they would put it on their heads and then they would unsheathe the sword and they would plant their feet and they'd get ready for battle. So these are the last two ones. The helmet of salvation. This is the reminder that no matter what darts the enemy throws at you, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you have life with him forever. Nothing can take that away. So you belong in Jesus Christ now and for eternity. He says, as you see the enemy approaching, you fill your mind and heart with that. I am saved in Jesus Christ because I believed in him. And then the sword of the Spirit It's the only offensive weapon actually on the list. Everything else is defensive. This is offensive. What do you use the sword of the Spirit for? Well, it's the Word of God. What does it do? It deflects and destroys the lies of Satan. And what Paul says is this. You fill your mind with the Word. And that is your attack mechanism when you hear those lies. This is why I think memorizing Scripture is a critical discipline for us. Why reading the scripture repeatedly is a critical discipline for us. That we don't go, you know, I I read that. I read the Bible. But we constantly soak in it and we memorize it and we take it into our hearts and minds so that on that evil day, we have it ready as a sword. When I was in seminary for one class, there was an assignment that we were given uh, to memorize some scripture. Actually, it was an optional assignment type of thing. They, they said, if you memorize a Bible verse or two, we will give you one point on your final grade at the end of the semester. So I looked at the requirements and I thought, I don't want to write any more papers. I can memorize scripture. And I was studying Ephesians with some friends. And so I thought, why not? I'm going to memorize, I'm sorry, Philippians, the whole book of Philippians, right? I only needed two chapters, I think, in order to Get a hundred in the class, but I figured I'll keep going, right? Because we're studying it. So I memorized the book of Philippians that semester. Now, I couldn't, it's been a few years, I doubt I could recite the whole book in order to you anymore, but what's been interesting is, after doing that, how deeply rooted so much of it still is in my heart and mind, and how in those moments of temptation and frustration, I come back to passages from Philippians, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things, And in those moments when I'm tempted to be selfish, I remember the selflessness of Christ. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility of mind, you consider others better than yourselves. And then he goes on to describe the humility of Jesus Christ because it roots itself through the power of God in our hearts and minds. Paul says, that's your sword in that moment. When we say, I want to walk away, I think sin looks better than Jesus. In that evil day, you pull out that sword of the word of God. And then the last few verses, quickly. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert, with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul says you put on the armor and then you drop to your knees and you pray for yourself and you pray for your church and you pray for those who are sharing the gospel and you stay alert wearing that armor to deflect the lies of the enemy. Always ready at any moment for that evil day. Do you and I know the word of God to the extent that we can grab that sword? Are we soaking our hearts and our minds in truth and in the trust of Jesus? Are we daily taking up that armor to stand firm until the day of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this time and we're grateful for your word. I pray we would take up the armor of God. I pray we would not listen to the lies of the enemy, but we would constantly remember, no matter what's going on in our lives, you are always good. You see everything, you know everything, you care. You have given us eternal life in Jesus, and we know that you are working all of history to a perfect resolution. So we don't need to win the war, we just need strength to stand. And I pray that we would. By the power of your Spirit, In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.